0: hi venters welcome back to another episode of the just checking in podcast i'm your host freddy cocker and this podcast is brought to you by vent a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I've always said on this podcast that I would make it a welcoming and safe space for any man who has detransitioned, and in today's episode, I am checking in with a man who has done this. I have already checked in with Tulip, aka Richie, Enyada and Limpida and in this episode I am checking in with Torin Danowski. Torrin is the founder of Don't Tread on Philly, a US libertarian political organisation and is the former libertarian candidate for the Mayor of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. In this episode we discuss his experience of anxiety and depression, being bullied by a former boss when he was a Christian missionary in his early 20s, being a perfectionist and how all of these factors led to the sex dysphoria he went on to experience. Once he began experiencing sex dysphoria, he says he saw it and transition as an escape from the issues he was running away from. He's also brave enough to admit that there were some elements of what my previous guest and Yardark called romantic autogynephilia in his experience of transition. Torrin transitioned and began going by his trans name of Audrey and was affirmed by the majority of people in his social network. However, After a dream he had, followed by a three-week period of realisation, he came to the conclusion that continuing to live as a trans woman was not the path for him and he subsequently detransitioned back to living as Torrin. We discuss this entire journey from transition to detransition and how he's got to the state of stability and happiness he is now. We also discuss how that sex dysphoria is affecting the mental health of other young boys and men like him why he thinks we need to move away from a black-and-white thinking towards treatment of sex dysphoria itself, and how we need to do more to help these boys find purpose, direction, and help them find the right path for them, whether it's transition or not. So this is how my conversation with Torin Donowski went. Torrin, welcome to the Just Checking in pod, mate. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you all the way from across the Atlantic Ocean. I'm really loving the uh, background of your your uh, of your recording here. The listeners can't see, but there's some groovy vinyl at the back there. How are you, mate?
1: Oh yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. It's 9 a.m. here on a, on a Saturday morning, and I was appreciate uh, that. Speaking bro. of <laughs> speaking of vinyl, I was at a I was at a music festival last night. So I'm um, and actually going back today. So I'm, I'm kind of like. Uh, in recovery mode a little bit got my uh got my green tea over here powering like getting, through getting man. my uh getting my voice back although uh, I wasn't really singing along I didn't I didn't know the band so but yeah I'm doing all right how are you Lovely mate. Yeah, I'm good, thanks mate. Yeah, it's great to hear that you're going to a music festival. I love my
0: music as well. And yeah, recovery mode definitely sounds apt And uh We saying we've got a phrase hair of the dog. So, oh, once yeah. you're hungover, just keep drinking <laughs> and you'll get through it.
1: <laughs> yeah, well the the issue is I'm in I'm in my mid 30s now. So, like last night I had two beers yet I wake up and I'm like, oh man, I didn't Oh, have water I know last the feeling. <laughs> <night>. <laughs> You can't risk it. You don't know how else it's going to affect
0: you. <laughs> yep, pretty much amazing mate your journey like the previous at three men i've interviewed on the podcast who have transitioned is an absolute mammoth roller and there's so many interesting things there's so many differences from your perspective to theirs and there's so many similarities as well so without further delay are you ready to start the show let's do it let's start your pod by talking about your mental health journey mate so i ask all my special guests on this topic this question first take me back to early life teenage years and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint?
1: Who's the Torrin we meet here? Oh, that's something I'm doing a lot of processing through right now. So my answer today might be different than it was a <laughs> couple of months back. It might be different in a few months from now. You know, thinking back, I think I was a, I was a pretty happy kid for the most part. Just grew up, you know, enjoyed. I don't know, enjoyed sports, you know, enjoyed running around. Was just uh I think your typical boy growing up. I don't think there's anything too too crazy to point out. But I don't know. I was uh it was a different uh always felt just kind of different as a kid. I, I I don't know why. You know, I was a really good student. Um, school came easy to me. Um I was I was someone who just didn't uh, didn't need to study, didn't need to really even think. It just happened. One of those kids. <laughs> yeah, one of those kids. And also like growing up, I moved around a lot every, you know, three or four years, my family picked up and moved. So a couple of times in elementary school, once in high school, I had to kind of move around. And I think every time I felt like I was getting settled in, we picked mm. up and moved until eventually it happened when I was, uh, when I was, a, was, a, I was uh, let's see, 15 or 16, I think was the last time we moved. That was jarring because I had kind of settled into the previous place that we lived and, Prior, we had always lived in like the same general location, you know, a few miles, you 10, 15 miles apart from where we lived previously. But we actually moved um, from the sort of northern sort of Midwest U.S. down to sort of the mid south. And so it was about an eight hour car ride. Um, Big culture shock, I imagine. Yeah, Yeah. it, it was it was huge. And we moved from a very rural area, like small school to a city that had. You know, gigantic schools was just kind of lost. I think something, if I look back, there was just something, something about growing up and I don't know if it was all the moves or just school coming easy or I don't know. There's just something that stirred up a lot of anxiety, I think, from Mm -hmm. a young age, a lot of fear of people. I think as I'm getting older and learning about myself, I I used to have myself pegged as like an extreme introvert. Like I don't want to be around people. I recharge by myself. I'm actually realizing I was wrong. I think my natural tendencies are more so extroverted and wanting to be around people, connecting with others. But something happened, and this is just something I think I'm going to be processing through for a long time, where I just became fearful of people and just had tons of anxiety I started losing my enjoyment of playing sports, uh, played American football growing up. At one point would start having like panic attacks before going to practice. I might be able to peg why, but it's kind of hazy at this point. It just that stuff started kind of coming up, I don't know, somewhere, you know, somewhere in my early, you know, adolescence. Yeah, there is there's this kind of happy kid that I look back and just seeing normal, no big issues to as I was growing up, just becoming more insecure, more anxiety-ridden, depressed at times. Um, and And that was just a process that kind of followed all the way through adolescence. In our chat off air, you said you were a perfectionist
0: growing up. So did the moving around affect that at all? And you said that we're going to discuss this later, obviously, but it was also a factor in the sex dysphoria that you eventually experienced. So what was your relationship between all of
1: these? Yeah. Uh, I think I'm still working that out. You know, one thing I've I've kind of realized recently is that home was sort of an unstable place for me. And that's not saying that I had a really unstable family. I mean, I think my parents, love my parents, have a great relationship with them. I think they did the best they can, but they came from very difficult backgrounds, very impoverished immigrant family backgrounds. And I think they were just kind of doing the best they can, but the home was just unstable for me. Like I would go out, I'd go to school, go to practice go hang out with friends. And I, I was the good kid. I didn't ever get sent, you know, into detention in school or something like that. I was never, I think at one point I have a memory, I think in like either second or fourth grade. So this, this is when I was like eight or either eight, somewhere between eight and 10 years old, got sent out in the hall from my classroom. And there's the only time this ever happened. And my teacher forgot I was out there. <laughs> she thought that I was like absent that day because I I was never getting in trouble for like talking in class or anything. So like I was this kid with a sterling record away from home and, you know, got great grades, did well, excelled at everything I did. But at home, it was just volatile. I think I somehow became, I don't know if it was my parents or just me or a combination of the two, probably a combination of the two where I became more defined by my shortcomings at home rather than the good things that I did away from home. So if we're talking, you know, I'm playing video games or something. Uh, my parents tell me I can play a half hour on the video game, a Sega Genesis or an N64 from back the day. And I go 35 minutes and it was a huge deal. <laughs> just major, major issue. And so there was just this, I don't know, I don't know if it was like a, obsessive compulsive or or i I don't know it's just like i had to be perfect like away Mm. from home because away from home was the place where i was stable whereas where i felt in control in in control needed secure secure yeah Yeah, secure would be uh, secure is probably the, the word i'm looking for away from home was where i felt secure home is where i felt insecure an irony there yeah Yeah. And so that just played into this, this kind of perfectionist mindset. And again, I, like I said, I was a good student. I didn't meet adversity in studies until I was taking like advanced university level courses in high school (laughs) where I actually had to think. And suddenly, (laughs) and suddenly I had to think, and I don't really know how to think. I didn't know how I learned. It took me until my last year of university to actually learn how I learned as an individual, And that kind of stinks because I I look back, I was like, gosh, I could have been such a great student in university, but I wasn't (laughs) because I didn't, I didn't know how to learn. Um, so like even the decent grades that I got and the decent record that I got was just all, you know, by the seat of my pants. (laughs) And so for someone who had this need to be perfect and get everything right, always have the right answers, always do the right thing. Yeah, that was tough. And I think, as I said, I I'd always kind of had some of this anxiety. Now looking back, but it was when I started sort of failing at being perfect when depression started mm. coming into play. It's like why why can't I do this? There's, is, is there something wrong with me? Is there is there a reason why I can't just look at a calculus textbook and understand all of it like <laughs> from the word go? Most people can't. <laughs> <as you laughs> yeah, said. that's it, mate. Right? I, I could do it now.
0: <laughs> so. When you got to university, like you mentioned there, obviously you were working out your learning technique, but it was a pretty positive period for your mental health. So who's the Toronto we meet here and when did it start
1: going wrong again? (laughs) Yeah. So university was kind of a mixed bag. Like I said, there's that aspect of sort of learning that it's okay to fail and I don't have to be perfect, but that took probably my entire four years of a university to sort of start figuring that out. So it was up and down. I mean, there, there were times where I just like kind of felt like myself, like, and just excelled and did what I was doing. Like my last year at university was probably the best that I had, but even that yes, was I'm- kind of wrapped up in, Oh, I'm doing well. I'm performing well. It wasn't this, I can look back and say, well, I felt good, but was I really mentally healthy? I, I don't know. It wasn't until after university, I was involved in a Christian ministry at my university and got asked to go overseas as a uh, university minister for a couple of years after college and, or sorry, university in, uh, in your speak. I think I went overseas and I was kind of just dropped into this different culture completely baptism of fire to pardon the pun (laughs) yeah yeah so what it was and i can i can look back now i can kind of tie this back to the whole home versus away idea where i was dropped into a situation where i wasn't comfortable it didn't feel like home to me and because i was there and it didn't feel like home i felt like i could just be me i could just be Torin. i could explore the things i wanted to explore i realized actually i don't like all of this you know, school and math and all of this stuff that I used to do, I don't love it. I actually like being around people. I started finding hobbies that I didn't have before, like photography. I had mm-hmm. never dabbled in photography until after I graduated university and found out I was good at it and enjoyed it and enjoyed meeting people through that. I played music. I started writing some music. I was really just being myself. And it was because because I felt uncomfortable for some reason. I, because I felt uncomfortable in my surroundings, I felt more comfortable to just be me, and I think maybe it was because I didn't feel like I was going to be judged, or there was more grace or understanding. Because i I was in Southeast Asia, who's going to judge some you know, like six foot three white dude? Other than as much as they're going to judge them, because I'm I stick out like a sore thumb. Regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the obvious angle. <laughs> yeah. So that me was probably the fullest expression of me and the best I had done from a mental health standpoint. You know, we have briefly talked about the fact that I have dealt with gender issues. Well, I, I dealt with those gender issues, you know, growing up as well. But during that time in Southeast Asia, when I was a Christian missionary, I didn't struggle with it at all. And I can look back and say, why? Because I was just being myself. I felt comfortable with who I was. I had this strong rooted foundation and identity that... I thought at the time couldn't be shaken, but uh, <laughs> eventually it was shaken. Yeah, and unfortunately it was shaken because
0: of some workplace bullying you went through during this period. So despite the fact that you said you know being in this period of your life was the fullest declaration of yourself, or the fullest expression of yourself, how did the bullying, A, affect your mental health, and B, affect your faith? So it's
1: a, it's a weird thing. I was involved in a very conservative, what's called Reformed Evangelical Christian movement, which I think uh, does a lot of things well, and then there are a lot of things that I don't think it it does well. (laughs) And I think when it comes to things like mental health, certain struggles, whether it is like gender or or sexuality or something like that, typically they don't react the best. Yeah, it's uh, not their forte. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it was odd because we were kind of this experimental group where we get eight of us, we get sent overseas, and we're doing our own thing. We didn't really have a whole lot of leadership, especially at the start. We were just kind of on our own. And I think that's part of the reason why I thrived. I was just on my own. It was six. Independent. Or swim. Yeah. 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 I was thrown out in the middle of an ocean and told survive. It wasn't until leadership actually came back and stepped into play and that started challenging how I was surviving that things started going awry. But I probably should have recognized some things pretty early on, and I say should have lightly. It's like I I was young; I was twenty two, mm-hmm. twenty three years old. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's important to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, one of the first times I met the guy who'd become my boss, he had us take the Myers Briggs type indicator, and that's what is that the, for
0: listeners who don't know?
1: Yeah, that's the uh, personality test that gives you sort of the four letters, like an I or an E. N and an S. I don't know. I was an extreme INTJ when I took it at 23, which is introvert. Um, gosh. You don't have to quote <laughs> yeah. them all. I think listeners can look it up. <laughs> yes. I was extreme INTJ. I was extreme on all of them. And looking back, I could get into this later that I think that was wrong. I think I had myself pegged wrong. It might have been kind of who I was then, but it wasn't really me. It was more the mask that I wore. And because I had gotten these extreme answers, uh, the very first thing was my, my boss kind of said something like I've never had to be a leader over someone with your personality. And I don't know how to do that, which is kind of like, okay, well, great. Thanks for the honesty, uh, but it doesn't really help. And he's like, I'm going to pair you with somebody else. Who's like the opposite of you to help you be something else. I I, I don't know, but From early on, like when I was over there, I I, I was doing so well. My boss wasn't involved. He was actually back here in the States um, on a furlough and was doing great, was just expressing myself fully in the process of kind of becoming fully myself. I started falling in love with one of my teammates, a woman that I would eventually marry. But for some reason, it wasn't okay that Hmm. I had this interest in her. It was okay for a couple of other people on our team to have dating relationships, but for some reason, and to this day, I don't really know other than this guy had me pegged as something from day one that... It wasn't okay, And so I tried to be extremely open and be like, hey, you know, I'm falling in love with this girl. She's awesome. I do want to marry her eventually. I would like to date her. We work extremely well together. You're saying all the right things, bro. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And being in a Christian context as well, being a very conservative Christian context, like, you know, it's not like we were out, um, you know, Gallivanting. You yeah. were gallivanting. <laughs> we weren't having the dirty premarital sex that you're not allowed to have. Heck, we didn't even hold hands. And part of that was I was afraid to. There's a lot there. There's <laughs> like, I wish I wasn't afraid to. Mm. Uh, I wish I would have been a little bit more forward. But from day one, there was just something off. My boss was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about this. Like, I think it could be a distraction. I think at one point I, I, emailed him, I said, look, I mean I I hear what you're saying, I hear your concerns. This is gonna be a distraction if I'm not open with this this girl about my feelings for her. And we're working well together. I don't want things to be a distraction. I've talked to many men in my life who know me way better than you do, that know her way better than you do. And they all say this is a good thing. So I told them I I don't take this lightly, but I can't take your advice here to stay silent. And I didn't hear back from him for like a month. Wow. <laughs> this is my boss. And then he comes back overseas. He, he get, comes back overseas. And the very first thing he says is, I was so mad at you that I couldn't talk to you for a month. Yes. Yeah. Strange so- reaction. Yeah, it was it was very odd. I mean, there, there were things I can look back. I was 22, 23 years old. I mean, I think I was probably a little bit of an arrogant jerk at times. There were things that I thought our organization wasn't doing well or didn't do correctly. And I sort of pushed back maybe too hard, even if I was right. And I'd like to think I look back and I was right about the things that I was pushing back on. I probably did them in an immature way. Which a mature leader, a mature boss, a mature spiritual leader would know how to handle that. But this guy, he just kind of turned it around and was like, well, you're just an asshole. You're a jerk. You're, you know, at one point he was saying this relationship, this conflict is causing me, my boss, to be a bad father and husband. And I'm I'm the only I was the only reason why the conflict was still going on. That guy has got some issues, bro. (laughs) Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, there's another time he said something like, again, he was complaining about my relationship with my future wife and said something like, people tell me that I give great advice. (laughs) I'm like, okay. Um, And he said, whenever people don't take my advice, they see their lives spin out of control. Yeah, I'm like, Dude, wow, there's is... some
0: narcissism,
1: personality <laughs> disorder yeah. of stuff going on there, mate. Right? Maybe
0: a bit of god complex. To pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah. it was just it, it, was, it was ridiculous. It caused strife in my relationship because we were both kind of like firstborn, sort of perfectionist, want to do everything right, want to please people, want to make everybody happy. So as time went on, while I was overseas. I was still being myself. That was a conflict. It's like I was still being myself. I still was determined to be myself. But it just became harder and harder and harder to the point where, yeah, mentally it it wore on me. I wore out. Mm. There's a point typically like missionaries will talk about when they move overseas. There's your initial culture shock. And then there's like a second round of culture shock like eight or nine months in when you're realizing, oh, this is my home now. And so I was kind of going through that and all of this struggle between like learning who I am, like learning that, oh, I'm actually not an introvert. I'm more of an extrovert. I like people. I'm not just this analytical like math kid that just knows numbers, data, facts. I'm actually creative. I love being creative. I love doing photography. I love singing. I love performing. I'm not this sort of stereotypical idealized masculine stoic man i'm more of this you know i'm definitely a man i love my manhood but i'm a little bit more flamboyant creative just out there so i'm going through all that that's a big cocktail yeah (laughs) but then being pushed back into that box of you know you're just (laughs) uh well, i don't know i don't know what i was i was being told you know i was learning a lot about there's no formulas in life yet being told oh hey there actually is a formula for you dating this girl but i'm not going to tell you what that formula is you have to figure it out on your own <laughs> got like flashbacks to like
0: kanye west when he's in that sway interview and he's like you ain't got the answer sway you ain't got the
1: answers <laughs> what are the questions <laughs> yeah yeah what are the questions sway <laughs> Yeah. So it was this confusing, like this deeply confusing time that was just so odd. And it started like at one point, I think what started the whole downfall, And eventually I got fired because our other leadership from the States came in and just took my boss's side and kind of took the typical sort of Christian ministry view of, well, you have to submit to your leaders. You have to submit, you have to do these things. And like, I I just couldn't take it. Like I said, I hadn't struggled with gender. I hadn't struggled with these things in in at least a year. And all of a sudden I'm overseas and one night I have a dream and in my dream I had transitioned. And I woke up and I'm like, what the hell? Like, this is some serious, like, (laughs) pardon my French, but like some serious fucked up shit. Like Mm. I, I was done with this. I thought I was done. I thought I was never going back. What is it? And of course I don't have anybody to go to with this. I can't go mm. to my boss. I can't tell him about this because if I'm getting reamed and put down for a normal relationship <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. for having late night conversations yeah. where we're not even holding hands or being physical, Jesus, how can I yeah. say that I had a dream that I was a woman? Like yeah. it's just not, it's just not going to happen. And
0: that's a hundred to 153.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it was just a nutty, nutty thing. And I mean, but that's, I mean, I guess that's really, a lot of times that's the way of the world in, in institutions and it's no different mm-hmm. in the church. It's like you've got an institution that, that sets up its ex- expectation for people and puts people in boxes and whatnot. And they expect them to stay in those boxes. And the minute they push out and go a different direction, they try to shove them back in. So I don't think my experience... Was necessarily unique. In fact, I'm talking with a friend of mine from university who we've stayed in close contact over the years and we've shared a faith and shared a great friendship. And I've always kind of talked about how horrible my experience with this ministry was. But the more I talk to him and hear about his experiences with things, the more I examine different churches and different organizations let's not even stick with churches like you start mm-hmm. looking into political organizations mm-hmm. i've been politically involved with some things it doesn't matter the organization if it's human there's going to be this sort of power it's the struggle Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and there's a need for power there's a need to success there's a need for dominance and a need for hierarchical dominance in, in society in general mm-hmm. and so I guess you know, I just the got the run is bad under that stick. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> if if the culture's bad, then any organization can become co-opted regardless of its yep. aims or good objectives. Yeah. Yeah. L- let's talk about the dysphoria now in more detail because you yeah. said off oh, air to me that the bullying had destroyed the previous identity you had. It destroyed that self-expression, that pureness of who you were. Yeah. So did that lead you to this desire to create a new identity as a trans woman? And also with the perfectionism you experienced? Did it feel like you had failed as a man,
1: therefore you would do better living as a trans woman? I think so. I think that's probably a good way to put it. Like I said, I had dealt with gender and dysphoria growing up as well. And I think it was that same sort of thing. It was, I, for some reason, feel like I can't express and be myself as a man. Like there's something about who I am as Torin that doesn't fit man And what you've been told was mass. Yes, yes, Yes. correct. And so, for some reason, I think that means I have to run away from being torn to be something else. Because then, if I'm a woman, then well, oh, I can be more outgoing. I can be more extroverted. I can be more flamboyant. Mm. I can care more about aesthetic and art and all of these things. And so, I struggled with that growing up. But it was never. I mean, this was. You know, late '90s, early to mid to late 2000s, the whole trans thing wasn't wasn't a thing. No, I mean, was, gay rights wasn't a thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it trans, was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It started to become a thing right after I got fired. I mean, I think right after I got fired and came back home to the U.S., which was 2013. Yep, that sounds about right. Had, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You had Laverne Cox on "Oranges of the New Black." You had. Caitlyn Jenner, that whole saga, 2014, Mm -hmm. 2015, it was suddenly just kind of in your face. And meanwhile, when you think about like workplace bullying or spiritual abuse, as I I typically put it as spiritual abuse, I tell people that I kind of died the day that I got fired, but it's not really true. It was more so I was poisoned. It was... I came home poisoned and slowly over the years, all the things that got said to me, all the things that got got reinforced by the church who wouldn't have my back, just slowly kind of poisoned my identity. I came home, I got married to that woman. I loved her to death. Maybe the best friend that I've ever had, the closest I've ever felt to an individual. I've never felt more myself as Torrin than being with her, but I had this poison that was in my body just Mm. eating away with it. And meanwhile, here's all these messages starting to come up from the media of, oh, here's this gender thing. There's people that think they're born in the wrong body. There's somebody else. There's somebody different than everybody says they are. And you can be you reborn and them. stuff. That yeah. kind of message, yeah, yeah. And there was just all of these, all this messaging, whether it was in the media or you start getting on Reddit or Instagram mm. or internet forums. The Tumblr. It's, yeah, and it's just like, transition is wonderful it's the best thing if you have any doubts whatsoever about being a man then you're actually a trans woman and you need to transition and life is going to be so great it's the best thing you could ever do and for somebody who was kind of poisoned and had my identity poisoned it sounded great it's like Mm. give me that because there's something wrong with me i got abused just for being myself I need to go be something different and then Snow maybe White the with world. the poisoned apple. Yeah. yeah. it
0: Tastes sweet. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. When I speak to men who have detransitioned Torrin, the most stigmatizing part of the conversation and the most taboo part is always about the focus of their transition. And it's something that's disputed in the mainstream. It's dismissed as ignored it's only really starting to get spoken about with men in the last couple years, I would say. With women, it's obviously been more of a conversation because more women who have detransitioned have been mm-hmm. more public for longer. So I spoke to Enyada, you might be aware of him. He mm-hmm. spoke about his experience of something he called romantic autogynophilia, whereby he said he worshipped and idolized women so much that he literally wanted to become one. Do you share any commonalities with his experience or not?
1: Yeah, I think I think that sort of made sense to me. Autogynephilia, I guess, is was is it love of oneself as a woman yes. from the Greek. It's a very controversial term mm-hmm. um, because it's often sexual and mm-hmm. men are, you know, men are sexual beings. Yeah. Women are, too. But men are just wired a little bit differently. That shouldn't be controversial, but I guess no. it probably is, too. And it's easy to want to make this whole autogonophilia sound like some dirty sexual thing. When which makes the conversation really... worse by the way yeah, yeah it is but what i liked about Inyata and other people that they, they've just been able to admit it like yeah there is sort of a sexual aspect to it but it's not purely
2: because mm-hmm.
1: one thing is like what i've seen is the right the right wing will kind of latch on to agp autogonophilia and say oh it's the sexual thing you see these people are just perverts yes it's actually this is way way different deeper, like way like broader, more, deeper, broader, more complex, more nuanced. And yeah, there was this aspect for me of just seeing, well, my ideal of a man is stoic, isn't creative, is hardworking, gets the job done, doesn't express himself is just a rock, a tree, an immovable object. But women are generally, they're just more out there. They're more outgoing. They're Friendly, they're creative, they're beautiful, they're just more desirable. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so I wanted to be, yeah. yeah, I wanted to be desirable. I even heard somebody recently, and I don't know if I agree with this a hundred percent. It's a broad generalization, but it's a generalization, or it's true for some reasons. And I don't know. Gosh, I wish I knew who quoted it because you might, you might have, you might have interacted with one of them online or something. Because might have been Limpyda, but it might not have been. Had it on the show. Somebody said something like, Men transition into women because they want to be an object of desire. They want to be a sexual object. Women transition because they don't want to be one.
2: Mm,
0: That comes back to kind of reasons of sexual abuse. They want to escape and then not be desired because then they don't want. Yeah, I hear
1: that. But then men do it because they want to be desired.
0: Mm. And
1: there was something about that with me. Like I wanted to be desired. I wanted to be recognized for what I thought was the creative kind of outgoing beauty that I had inside of me that for some reason wasn't okay to be as a man. Mm. So I definitely, definitely can relate to that idea of that women are just better. So why wouldn't I want to be one? Mm.
0: Um. i've had guests who have talked about what's going to i've had limpida talk about it i've had debbie hayton who's a who's a trans woman talk about it and what i find annoying is that there are some in this debate who will deny it exists <laughs> and then there are some in this debate who will attack people like debbie for having you know the bravery to admit that she experienced it and it was a focus of her transition. Perhaps it wasn't the main reason, but it was a focus of her transition. And she gets more abuse for admitting that she has it from the sort of extreme gender critical side. So when you talk about it, when she's talked about it, when other people have talked about it, surely that makes more stigma become attached to it rather than less.
1: Yep. I, I, what is it? Carl Jung said something about, you know, fanaticism is always a sign of repressed doubt if there's an extreme reaction to something like that, it might be because you're afraid that it could be true. (laughs) Mm, The truth hurts. Yeah. Yes, it does. And I'm not saying that autogonophilia is a perfect catch all term because there isn't, you know, my experience of, my own struggles is different than Debbie Hayden's. It's different than, and Yada's it's different than Blair white. It's different than Buck Angel. It's different. Mm-hmm. We're all our own individuals. We have overlap and we have things that we mm-hmm. kind of experience together, but ultimately we're, we're Unique in our individuals. Our own. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, yeah, there are things that I, about my experience with autogynephilia that are sexual, that I'm ashamed of that I wish I didn't deal with there are things about it that I don't, it's like, okay, whatever. I'm just a human being that has my own quirks and struggles. Mm -hmm. Like it just Mm -hmm. is what it is. And even for the people who are sort of attacking the term and come back and stigmatize things even more, the same is true for them. You know, they have their own struggles. They have their own unique reasons for why they're going through what they're going through. And there's a good chance if they're experiencing that strong of a reaction to someone else describing their own experience maybe these people who are reacting aren't quite actually getting at the root of what's going on in their own lives Mm. let's talk
0: about your medical transition now because you started this way before you socially transitioned Mm -hmm. so what impact did the estrogen that you took have on your physical health your appearance and your mental health
1: At first it was like, you know, taking, uh, first it was like heroin. It it felt great. Oh, wow. Oh man, this is, this just feels good. I mean, not that I'm saying it's. Didn't well, it didn't feel like heroin. <laughs> yeah. It didn't feel like heroin. It wasn't, it was more psychologically just like, Oh man, this is so great. Like it was gender euphoria yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. My body's changing. This is wonderful. Estrogen has a natural, especially if you're taking it exogenous, estrogen has a natural calming effect for some, for someone who steals with anxiety. It was amazing. Cause it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm actually kind of calming down. Like this feels wonderful. So it felt great. There's a lot of euphoria, but like a heroin, like a fentanyl, like any other drug. <laughs> there's a down. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, like, I have a male body through and through. I'm a man. My body's not designed t- to take in that drug and process it well. Or that level of it.
0: I mean, perhaps we right. both have estrogen in ourselves, which yeah, is perhaps a very low level. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's not supposed to be at that high, especially compared to, <laughs> compared to my testosterone. And I think since then, like I've dealt with things like brain fog, just lack of energy, just all the sort of symptoms. I think you would hear of like a fifty year old man going through with low T. I mean, I'm basically going through that at <laughs> at thirty five or thirty. Wow. Yeah. So you were on Eastern and right,
0: saying for about four months, so not yep. a long amount of time, and then you had this self-described freak out about it during the yep. summer of 2020 and then you stopped yeah so at this point you've changed your name you're now living under your trans name i believe
1: uh not yet not not, not yet at that okay point. yep
0: so who's the Toran we meet at this point and when did you change the name and socially transition
1: yeah so i had kind of had a freak out by this point i had uh my wife had left and divorced over my gender struggles I hadn't planned on transitioning. I had planned on fighting it, fighting the dysphoria as much as I could. Frankly, though, I mean, the, the social push was was too strong. And maybe, maybe had she not left, maybe I would have found a better option in a better way. But at the time, the only option being pushed is if you feel these things, you need to transition. So I started the medical transition, but then about three or four months in it was in the middle of all the COVID lockdowns. I just had a freak out. I think I was, I was reading some books. I was trying to get back. I was starting to try to get back in touch with my spirituality. Uh, I was reading some books by I think Henry Nowen, a few other spiritual writers. And like, there was a part of me that was like starting to reinteract with the Torin that had died uh, or the Tauren that had been poisoned. And I was starting to see that. I'm like, man, this is actually who I really want to be. I don't really want to wear this mask, this trans woman, or I was thinking about going by Audrey. I was like, I don't really want to be Audrey. I want to be Torrin because I liked Torrin. This was great. I don't know why I was abused. I don't know why these things happened. I don't know why growing up just being myself wasn't good enough, but I like this. And there was part of me that really wanted to you know, reconnect with my ex-wife, I said, okay, I need to stop. Like, this is not the right path to go on. But I was very much this like black and white thinker. I was like, well, if I stop trying to be Audrey, I need to go back to being Torin in terms of who I've always been. I just need to, you know, work hard, be stoic. I found it hard to shift back into who I was, say, in Southeast Asia. And I just continued to kind of be miserable because I wasn't like fully integrating like the parts of myself that wanted to be a woman that wanted to be Audrey, these, these more creative, outgoing, you know, all of these regressive stereotypes that I wanted to be. I wasn't actually integrating them into me. I was kind of just going back to trying to be this shell of myself and wear this mask of a man that I thought I had to be and so that just created this sort of violent back and forth for months and really mm-hmm. it was the same back and forth I had been going through for years at this point so from probably you know 2014 to 2020 I had been going through that back and forth so and you were splitting av-
0: yourself almost yeah, yeah.
1: very much it, it, it was so I was going through this violent back and forth I ended up talking with talking with Benjamin Boyce at, for the first time at during I remember during watching this that period. one yeah 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 and I was going I was in the middle of that back and forth. I was in mm. the, the backstage at that point. I was in the backstage at that point. And there were things that were good about it. And there were things that were just like, I was starting to reconnect with myself. But here's the thing that I've learned recently. It's hard for a human being, man, woman, whatever. It's hard for a human being to be themselves. It's difficult. Mm. Life is hard we have a society that values certain things and expectations. Sometimes some things that society values are good. Some things are bad, but it forces all of us to kind of put on a mask and not actually be ourselves. I'm not the only person that has a hard time being myself. I'm not the only person that it's painful to be myself. And I think what was happening was that I'm going through this back and forth and I'm re-engaging with myself, my own personality, who I really am. And I find, Oh, this is painful. Oh, this is difficult. And what the whole sort of trans ideology says is, Oh, you're having a hard time being yourself. You're having a hard time being a man. It's painful. Well, then you need to go live as a woman because then it's not going to be painful. It's going to feel good. Like go do this. And so what I kind of liken it to, I, I give a, what I call a, a broken leg analogy, where gender dysphoria isn't the broken leg. It's not a root cause. Gender dysphoria is the pain of a broken leg. It's the symptom. It's the symptom of that broken limb. And so what transition does, what taking cross-sex hormones does, what socially transitioning does They're like shots of morphine. They're like shots of fentanyl, heroin, whatever. They numb the pain. (laughs) They help you avoid the pain. So I was going through this violent back and forth like, oh, I'm starting to be myself. I like it. But oh, gosh, this hurts. I need to go take another shot of morphine. And so eventually I decided chasing the dragon. Yeah, I'm going to chase it all the way. I'm just going to shoot up on estrogen and eventually socially transition because this feels good. I'm not going to hurt anymore. I mean, publicly, I would kind of say, yeah, I know it's not going to fix all my problems. But, you know, I think somewhere in my head is like, this feels good. All the affirmation feels good. The drugs feel good. These things feel good. Just give me more, more, more. Mm.
0: Yeah, you mentioned there about affirmation, and you lived in a place which was very liberal, it would be naturally very affirming when you came out. And when your friends were told, they immediately accepted you, probably did it from a very good place. Now you've detransitioned and you realize that transitioning didn't help you. How do you look back on that period now? Do you wish there had been more questioning or do you think actually you would have just cut them off as a friend if they did?
1: (laughs) So it's, it's interesting. The relationships that I think maybe got hurt the worst were the relationships on the extremes. The ones that said, I disagree with you 100% or the ones that said, I affirm you 100%. The relationships that were the best that I clung to were the ones that said, I don't know if you're making the right decision. I don't know if you are doing the right thing. I don't know if I agree with this whole trans thing, but I'm going to love you anyways. I'm going to walk with you through this those were the best relationships because they gave me the space to come back in a weird way. (laughs) Well, not to come back, but also just be me in a sense of being myself Mm. because I was of that same mindset. It was, I don't know if this is the best decision. I don't know if this is the right thing. I had severe drawbacks to what I was doing, but I was in so much pain from that sort of broken leg, that broken identity And I wasn't being offered any alternatives other than the drug. I didn't have anybody coming in and say, hey, let's set the bone. Let's perform surgery on the bone. Let's fix the bone. I just had, oh, here's another shot of morphine. Here's another shot of heroin. Here's another shot of estrogen. And so when people said, I don't know, but I'm going to love you and be with you regardless, that allowed me to process, gave me the space to process, allowed me to be myself. And then eventually, you know, eventually when I came time and I decided to detransition, I mean, they were the first people I would go and talk to mm, naturally. and then yeah. come to find out most of the people who were very affirming that, you know, I'd kind of keep at arm's length were like, yeah, we thought you were making the wrong decision. We didn't agree with this. It's like, okay, great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm, that's some dishonesty there yeah that's some dishonesty there as you said very early in the pod you're a fairly tall man you're six foot three so yep. passing as a trans woman would have been a pretty difficult task unless you had said <laughs> you were a, a former olympic rower or something like that yeah <laughs> did that increase the anxiety about passing in quotes which means people perceived you as a woman knowing that there was always going to be at least a little bit of
1: initial confusion you know i think it was a blessing. Um <laughs> Looking back, it was a a blessing that I wouldn't have had an easy time with that because it had I just been able to pass easily, naturally, no work, whatever. And and some men are. A lot of people like to say, oh, I can always tell. And that's that's only because what you're saying is you don't think you can be fooled. (laughs) You can can definitely be fooled. Everyone Um, can be fooled. (laughs) But had that come naturally and easily to me, I mean it just would have made that affirmation and that drug all the stronger. Mm. And so kind of what was happening and was that it's like okay, if I want to have less anxiety about presenting as as Audrey presenting as a woman, then I'm going to have to take more drastic steps because just taking the estrogen isn't working. You know, I struggled deeply with mental health after my wife left, gained a lot of weight, struggled binge eating eating disorders things like that. I was struggling with it. If I want to be happy with my appearance as a trans woman, I'm going to have to take some really drastic steps that go beyond just medication. And that got me really thinking about that whole drug analogy. And it was just like, well, you know what? Yeah, this feels good, but it's not answering the problem. There's still something broken here. I still have anxiety. I still have an identity issue. I still don't know who I really am. And me taking another drug or me losing weight or me getting some sort of surgery or something, this isn't going to fix it.
0: So it was almost like the fear of taking the next steps in the future made you think about the present.
1: Right. Even though all the steps I had taken, like I did eventually socially come out, you know, I never legally changed my name, but, you know, changed my name at on social media at work, you know, had started actually presenting, around people and even at, at work events and things like that, it felt great. I mean, it was awkward. It was full of anxiety, but there was a rush to it as well. And there was a rush to being, I don't know, there there's just a rush to putting on that mask and being who I thought was really me. But yeah, the more, the more I thought about it, the more that continuing to take the next step was just not going to have the returns that I wanted it to have. I want to move on to detransition now, because
0: the focus of your transition started with a dream. And the focus of your detransition, I believe, started with an epiphany or some sort of (laughs) dreamlike scenario. So just tell me about
1: this and the impact it had on you. Well, yeah, I was going through a period, this is a, this is about a year ago now, where, again, like I said, there's, you could say my transition was kind of successful. I mean, it's not like I was passing or even living full-time as a trans woman. It just, I was accepted. I was doing a lot of successful things with political advocacy, was successful at my job, just had a lot of acceptance. But I mean, all that acceptance that I had always wanted, all that wanting to be desired, I had all of that. Everything that I wanted, it seemed to be giving me, but I was still, still miserable. So this is about June of last year. I'm just struggling with that. At the time, I was running for getting ready to run for state representative, state of Pennsylvania. So it would be a representative for Philadelphia in my particular area, representing Philadelphia to the state of Pennsylvania. And I was also thinking about running for mayor in Philly. And it was just this whole thing like, yeah, the Libertarian Party, this would be great. A third party, we could run a trans woman as mayor. This would be awesome. You know, a trans woman that's not this like super leftist ideology, like this would be a total mind fuck. Like this would be great. Just something felt off about it. I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I chasing this clout, this glory, this power? Why am I doing this? Because I'm not feeling any more secure. This isn't fixing the broken leg. And at one point, I mean, I won't get into specifics. Yeah. I had a dream that was just, let me just put it this way. It showed me what I really wanted in life. It was clear. And I woke up from that dream. It felt so real. I'm like, I pissed this away. Like I pissed this away. And now I've kind of gotten away from that a little bit because I realize, Yes, I did. I made some stupid decisions along the way. And I think none of those decisions were actually related to transitioning. It was actually all the little decisions I made in life that weren't dealing with my mental health, that weren't dealing with sort of the poison from abuse. It was all these little decisions that made the transition sort of inevitable because I was cutting myself off from the things that would actually heal me instead running towards the drug. And so I had that dream where I was like, gosh, I pissed it away. I screwed up. This isn't good. This isn't what I want. And I was just bothered with it for several weeks. I mean, I was, it was, I was disturbed. (laughs) Mm. Let's just put it that way. I was disturbed. And a couple of weeks later, yeah, I had done a whole weekend of, of gathering petition signatures to get on the ballot for state representative and. I had one of my worst like mental health weekends I've had had in a long time was just depressed, miserable, anxious as a black hole of a weekend. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, what, what's wrong with me? Like I have everything that I want, said I wanted, I'm transitioning. This feels good. I'm thinking about taking next steps. What's wrong? Why, why did I piss away what I really wanted? and the truth was i just realized like i hated myself for some reason i hated myself and i didn't know why because here i am like even my wife who left and we divorced loved me thought i was great my company that i work for like they have nothing but usually good things to say about me my, my parents love me my friends love me yet i hate myself why is that and so i suddenly started thinking about it and realizing maybe if i didn't hate myself what would it look like what would it look like if i decided not to hate myself would i still want to transition and it just hit me like no like no if i stopped hating myself as Torin, there's no reason to keep going down the path that i'm going down
0: before you confirmed this decision you took some shall we say exciting substances (laughs) <laughs> with a friend, what did taking those exciting substances, those extracurriculars, as we would say, as a slang term in the UK <laughs> do for this decision and your perception
1: of yourself as Torrin? You know, I, I think I went into it with a friend who was, he was struggling with some mental health things at the time too. And I had done some guided psychedelic stuff with some organizations here in the U S that was prescribed. And it, it sort of worked, and I thought, okay, let's let's give this a, let's give this another shot. And I remember that day I kind of went into it. I this stuff can be abused. This is not something. it's not uh, it's not a magic bullet. It doesn't solve everything. It has to be respected. I went into that day, prepared for it, did a lot of meditating, praying, just processing through my life. And this experience that I had with the substances, it was one of the first times, like, I mean, I almost, I saw myself and reconnected to myself from, you know, 10 years before when I was in Southeast Asia and was like, this is me. This is who I really am. And I love this person. I loved who I was. I don't really like who I am right now. I'm really annoyed by it. I'm annoyed by some of the decisions I've made. I'm annoyed by how I was tricked into thinking that becoming a trans woman was gonna was gonna solve my problems. But I really love who I was. I think I'd even wrote a song that day. It was the first time I picked up my guitar and like played music in in years. And I'm just like, this is me. And I I love being me. It's hard. There are things that I don't like about being me. Uh, It's painful, but it's worth it. This is what reality is. Reality is, is is I'm torn. I'm a man and it's good enough. (laughs) And why am I rejecting what's good enough for something that isn't actually going to fix or like the the standard of perfection, the standard ideal, this romanticized version of femininity and womanhood that I wanted, that I can't ever achieve and won't ever be enough. Why am I rejecting what's good enough for something that won't ever be? Mm. And so this experience that I had just like solidified it. Like I, you know, started kind of Coming down from it, was hanging out, talking with my friend. We were just chatting like through what we were processing. And it was clear as day. Like, this is it. I'm done with this and have been done with it since. How did your faith help you during this period and now? Well, I think at the time I was rediscovering it. I think part of what happened with sort of my identity deterioration was my time in Southeast Asia had developed a lot of questions. I'm like, I'm not sure I agree with the church on how they look at the individual, how they look at the purpose of religion, how they look at the purpose of Christ. Like the goal for the organization that I was in was like, well, we're, we're building a movement. We're trying to get souls saved and go to heaven. In my own personal studies of scripture, I was saying, well, yeah, sure. There is a salvation aspect of things. There is a heaven aspect of things. But when I look at the life of, say, Jesus, way more of what Jesus did and talked about was was about life here on earth. Like almost 95% of it was about life here on earth. Like, how do you live a good life here on earth? Not how do we get people saved and pray a prayer and add numbers so that there's more people going to heaven when they die? Or as the organization that I worked for, they had this whole thing that was like, well, we know that Jesus will come again when there's somebody saved from every people group on earth. So let's make Jesus come again quicker by getting somebody saved from all the people groups on earth. <laughs> it's like, don't, don't you even like Jesus even said, he's like, I don't know the day or the hour. Like, so how are you going to bring about this quicker? There was some sort of just hubris that just, honestly, it repulsed me to think that we know and have the answers and we know what God's doing. We know how people need to live. Like, yeah, there are many good things to learn from scripture and there are many good things about how to live life, love yourself, love your neighbor, but there is always this thing that I felt was missing is that, you know, Jesus said the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you're not loving yourself, how can you love your neighbor? Because if you're loving your neighbor as yourself and you hate yourself, then that means you're hating your neighbor as well.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: And this aspect of Christianity that I was involved with didn't have any of that focus on actually loving yourself. It drove in that self-hatred more and more and more because we were taught, you know, dig out the sin in your heart, dig out the impurities, dig out the imperfections, dig it out, deal with it. Doesn't help a perfectionist, does it? Yeah, no. (laughs) Like looking back, like no wonder why I was drawn to it. Like it, it, it gave an answer. And so I had all of these questions and, and then, you know, with the abuse going on, like just how, like, how do I answer all of this? And at one point, I mean, I think this is kind of when I can look back and say, you know, the poison took its toll as I remember reading my Bible one morning in like 2014, 2015, just saying, I can't answer these questions that I have and just, you know, shut it. And then that was it. I don't remember, like, I don't remember the next time that I opened a Bible, And I'd still go to church. I'd still try to connect with people. And like you're not answering my questions. I have so many questions about how we as Christians interact with ourselves, interact with others. Why did I get abused for having these questions? And just never, never getting those answers. Eventually, though... Again, I think this is a blessing and I'd say by the grace of God, I I found a church here in Philly where I I walked in one service and this is after my wife had left. I had a fallout with the church that I was going to here in Philly because they basically looked at me and said, you know, your wife was justified because your gender dysphoria was abuse to her. You suffering from gender dysphoria was abusive to your wife. And I just was like, I don't know if I, you know, I could definitely, as any man can be, I had a propensity to be an asshole. And there were things that I said that I never should have said to my wife, but rising to the level of, I was some sort of like abusive, like chronic abuser or abusive. I couldn't, I couldn't own that. And I couldn't own something that I was dealing with internally that I'd tried my best not to put on her, I couldn't own that as abuse. I couldn't own my suffering to be something that's abusive towards her. Mm. I still wrestle with that to this day. I mean, maybe, I mean, there's, there there are plenty of plenty of things that otherwise non-abusive and very good people would do to get a fix on the drug that they want Mm. and i wanted that fix of transitioning so mental
0: illness isn't beautiful
1: mate mental illness makes good people do bad things yeah i mean
0: (laughs) yes that's what the mental health community refuses to accept sometimes which annoys me
1: yeah so one sunday i go into this church i got recommended so i went to the church that my wife had been going to and i had known the pastor and he was actually being a great great guy and he said, well, you don't know if she's going to come here. It's not going to go well. If she does go check out this church down the street. So I went home, kind of defeated. I'm like, I can't do this. And the, the church service was later in the day. And I went and I ended up going, dragged myself there. And I don't know, it was like beginning of the service, halfway through the service. The end, I don't know, the pastor's wife gets up and speaks. And it's this small church, like a big, old, beautiful church here in Philly. But it's small you know, maybe a hundred people, if that wide range, we're talking, you know, even distribution of ages, very different from the young hip churches that I had been going to most of my life. Pastor's wife gets up there and starts speaking and she's like, I, you know, I, I struggle with, you know, mental health. I struggle with mental illness. I struggle with expectations, anxiety, depression deeply. She's like, I feel like I'm a terrible pastor's wife because there are days where I can't get up and feed my kids because of my mental health. And Eric, my husband has to, has to, you know, do these things and has to take care of me. And I feel terrible that this is the case. And it just struck me. I'm like, this is the first time I've ever heard somebody speak about mental health in church. And this is coming from a pastor's wife. And pastor's wives are expected to have it all together Mm -hmm. be these perfect women. Almost like the first lady. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And she's just kind of confessing all of these struggles and these anxieties and these pain points. And it was, man, it was, it was beautiful. There was something about it that just told me these people suffer well. They experience suffering and they experience it well. And it was, it was, it was beautiful. When you detransitioned,
0: obviously the dysphoria didn't go away straight away. However, Benjamin Boyce, who you've been interviewed on twice, he spoke to another male who had detransitioned and you took a lot of commonality from this episode because he brought up a book called The Body Keeps a Score. Mm -hmm. And through the teachings of that book, your dysphoria disappeared after six months. Tell me how.
1: Disappeared is probably a strong word, but I wouldn't say it's entirely inaccurate. I think there's still, like I'm an addict. In recovery. Yeah. AGP, autogynephilia, transitioning, all these things, it's like an addiction. It's easy to have these thoughts and feelings and desires come up, but... Yeah. I'm no longer experiencing any desire really whatsoever to transition. It's like, I'm not going out, going out places, seeing women and saying, gosh, I wish I was her. Yeah. These, these things aren't happening anymore. Basically the body keeps score is talking about uh, trauma and how trauma manifests itself in the body, particularly the brain and our sort of responses to things like how we see something that happens and it, it sort of triggers us into a certain response. So what I've kind of learned is my desire to transition, my need to transition, this obsessive, I mean, really it is kind of a, like an OCD type thing, is a response to the stress and the frustration and the trauma of my past and having these kind of repeat triggers. So what I've found, and I mean, again, it's not perfect and this is still in recovery and this is a process, mm-hmm. but I'm what I'm finding is, is dealing with these traumas dealing with things. And I keep, I keep using the term abuse. Like it's part of me dealing with the trauma of whatever, everything that happened is me saying, this is what happened. It felt like abuse to me. It was a torturous hell. I have to deal with it. I have to address, address the pain of what happened there. I have to address the pain of moving several times growing up. I have to address the pain of not feeling like I was enough at home. I have to address the broken leg. I have to address the limb that's broken and not just focus on the pain and not feeling the pain. Because the truth of the matter is, when you address the broken leg, when that starts healing, yeah, there's residual pain. I've broken a foot, I've broken my collarbone, I've broken my hand, I've broken bone. And there's certain times, I mean, I broke my collarbone 20 years ago or 25 years ago. And once in a while I'll do something and it'll just be like, Oh man, that almost feels like a hint of what I felt back then when it's not, it's just like psychosomatic. It's just something in my brain just reacting. And that's really what gender dysphoria is. It's just a reaction to something being broken and whether it's by trauma or something else I think there are some people who have strong opinions that it's it's all trauma based. I'm not qualified to make that judgment, but at least for me, I'm finding it is. So when I go down and try to actually address that trauma, address those issues, it helps with the pain. Does it get rid of the pain? No, because it's it's still there and it's still healing and healing hurts. Healing Mm -hmm. is a painful process. Even physically, it's a painful process. And so what I'm finding is, is that when I go and do the things and to treat that broken limb, it dissipates the dysphoria. When I take the steps that I need to, to love myself, that's something that our culture gets so wrong. There's this message of, well, love yourself, love yourself, feel good. They conflate the feeling of love with the act of love. They say, well, you need to feel good about yourself. You need to love yourself. You need to love who you are. You know, enjoy, you know, there's the whole sort of, you know, weight acceptance movement of, you know, people who are overweight. Like, yeah, you know, they need to learn a lot of self-acceptance. We all do. And you can learn self-acceptance no matter your parents, no matter your weight, no matter your gender, you can learn self-acceptance and self-love. But in order to actually fix what's going on, you have to do the acts of loving. And so is it loving? Is it actually acting in love for myself as a man to take cross-sex hormones? I think the answer, you know, at least for me, and is probably going to be true for most people, the answer is emphatically no, like. Yes, you will feel good. It'll drop that anxiety level. You know, maybe your endorphins are going up a little bit and you're feeling this euphoria and it'll feel good and you'll feel like you're loving yourself, but you're actually not. So what this guy talked about on on the Benjamin Boyce episode and the body keeps the score is he talked about actually doing the acts of loving himself, trying to eat better, working out, doing the things that made him him. And that's how I'm trying to process through things. What's loving towards myself? Is it going to be eating cleaner, a cleaner diet, more whole foods and less the garbage that we have in our foods here in the U S yeah. Is it going to be riding my stationary bike more? Yes. Is it going to be doing things like I've taken my camera out and I'm consistently shooting photography again for the first time in a decade? I'm doing these things that are acts of love towards myself that are actually resolving, you know, it doesn't, doesn't always make me feel better because like I said, being myself is hard. It's difficult. It doesn't feel good, but feelings, feelings are more of a window. They're a piece of information. They're not a, they're not a, You know, they're not the definition of reality. They're not necessarily the truth. They're just a piece of information to be sort of processed and reacted to. If you're not processing them, if you're not reacting to them, if you're trying to run away and cover them up, then you're really just destroying yourself. But if I can say, oh, man, I went out and shot photography, but this actually hurt because I have to grieve the fact that I haven't shot photography in 10 years. I lost 10 years of not doing something that I loved. I have to go out and shoot and I feel that loss while I'm shooting and it hurts while I'm shooting to think about the fact that I didn't do this for 10 years. But if I say, well, I don't want to feel that loss. I don't want to feel that hurt. Then it'll be another 10 years before I do it again. And I'm just sort of killing myself. So the whole thing with this guy's point was do the acts of love and the acts of love aren't necessarily going to feel good.
0: And as a final question, let's reflect on this mental health journey. So I'll say it in two parts. A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the Torrin who was experiencing that anxiety and depression in high school, the Torrin who was being bullied when he was working as a Christian missionary, or the Audrey living as a trans woman, but as you say, running away from those underlying issues, what would you say to him
1: knowing what you do now? Yeah, I'd say a few things. I'd say... You are not what you do. You are not what you have. You are not what other people think of you. And that life is hard. Being yourself is difficult. And it's hard. And it's okay. Like you are already enough. You as a human being have worth, dignity, and value. You're born into this world. You come into this world with the dignity of just being a human. Just having the capacity for choice, the capacity to create, the capacity to love. Yeah, you have the capacity to hate. You have the capacity to destroy. You have the opposite capacities as well, but you have the ability to to choose between the two. And that's good enough. And it's something that I wish, oh man, I wish, I guess the other thing that I would say is explore yourself. Get to know yourself. When you find something that is you, that you love, that you enjoy, that you want to express, don't be afraid to pursue it.
0: We've talked all about your mental health journey, Torren. Now I want to speak about your perspective, your work in this debate, this trans versus detrans space, this conversation. So the first one I want to ask is, When it comes to boys and men who are experiencing dysphoria, what do you think is the best route for them to figure out if transition is the right choice for them, the wrong choice, and how they can find purpose? Million dollar question, I know, but.
1: (laughs) So this is something I've been processing through a lot, and I think you know maybe last summer when i did the interview with benjamin boyce or even earlier this winter when you first contacted me i think i wanted to have a lot to say i think i mm-hmm. wanted to i think i wanted to make a difference and i still do that desire is still there but i'll bring up a quote from the book of proverbs proverbs 17:27 through 28 uh, the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint and whoever has understanding, mm, testify <laughs> yeah and whoever has understanding is even tempered even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues
0: that is profound
1: yeah or the kind of modern version i don't know if this is ben franklin or somebody else kind of said the same thing and said you know better to stay silent and yes. thought a fool than open your mouth and, and remove all <laughs> doubt yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh i've been there yeah <laughs> So that being said, I have a lot of strong opinions on this topic, really strong opinions. And at this point, I would say I would say that my opinions are becoming stronger and maybe more solidified. But that concerns me for a couple of reasons. One, the young quote that I, I brought up earlier in the discussion about fanaticism and repressed doubt. And then also, you know, this thing that I've kind of thought is, is that, the stronger my opinions that I hold, maybe the more care I should take with how mm. I express them. And so when you ask your question about young boys or young girls dealing with sex and gender issues, I would just point back to the broken leg analogy. Gender dysphoria, is, as far as we know, I know this is controversial and I know that a lot of people will disagree with this, but it, it's not an innate thing. It's a fallacy as far as we know that, you know, there are male brains in a female body or female brains in a male body. There's just no evidence to suggest that there is. There are studies that sort of suggest it, but there are major, major holes in those studies and there are way smarter people than me that can hash that out. (laughs) So, but I would also say is that, you know, gender dysphoria is not a choice. It's not something we choose to struggle with. And so as far as that being sort of innate or naturally occurring, yeah, of course it is. It's a natural thing. It's a natural thing that humans deal with. And so someone who is dealing with gender dysphoria or wanting to transition shouldn't be looked at as something other because it's just a natural human thing to deal with. Mm. You know, one of the most damaging and hurtful things I had someone say to me once is, but that's so unnatural. And this was like a really close friend like this is unnatural you need to get this fixed when really i was learning actually this is natural this happened because of natural things that happened in my life i didn't this is a natural response to trauma yeah yep yeah exactly And so, for some young kid, uh, and I know it's exploding right now, and so many more kids are getting referred to gender clinics and whatnot. I know you've had massive issues with that over in the UK. I think the reckoning's about to start happening here in the US.
2: Mm.
0: I think the detransition wave is is sadly coming very, very yeah. soon. If, it's, if not, it's already here.
1: Yeah, these kids are struggling. These adults are struggling. Yeah, there's some pretty disgusting and messed up things surrounding it. Again, humans have the capacity. When it's humans suffer, they have the capacity to either suffer for good or suffer for evil. And the natural tendency is to suffer in an evil, selfish way that says, give me what I want now to fix mm. what I want so I feel good. So... There's this natural tendency to want to say, well, this is evil. This is bad. We shouldn't be doing this. Let's ban it. Let's not even think in terms of these steps of transitioning kids or adults or, you know, I'm (sighs) sorry. This whole thing just kind of ends up just flustering me because it's, Mm. there's so, so much nuance to it. We'll talk about kids, but what about adults? What about yeah. me, who I was 25 years old, losing my identity, like I said earlier, poisoned, and yet I'm being hit with these messages? And you're mm-hmm. saying, because I'm an adult, I had consent, and I just have to deal with my own consequences? Well, yes, that's there's truth to that, but I was Got also, so, them. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. I was sort of groomed into it as well. And what I would say is also that that just shows you how much more a a child is susceptible to these things. Yeah, yeah. So my response is let's accept it for the suffering that it is. Let's remove all the politicization that this is right, this is wrong, this is bad, this is evil, this is good, this is wholesome. And let's say... Let's take a look at it like it's a broken limb. This pain, this need to transition, it's the pain of a broken limb. What's the broken limb? I think it's easy to point to, like, especially for all the young girls who are transitioning now. With a broken limb is, you know, puberty sucks regardless. You know, boy or girl, it sucks. It's 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 annoying. For women, it it's it's pretty drastic. <laughs> You know, it's really drastic and really different. So no wonder why. If mm. they're saying, well, if you're not comfortable with puberty and what you're going through, then you must be a boy. Like, well, no. Again, the broken limb is the uncomfortability with yourself or, or not even that. The uncomfortable, It's just a symptom. It's just the broken limb is just the natural like trauma of going through puberty. Mm. <laughs> and it's okay. So let's address that. Mm. Let's not just shoot up on the drugs, the feel good stuff, the trying to avoid pain, and let's address it. So, in some senses, you know, whether it's a kid, whether it's an adult, I'm not going to fault somebody for pursuing relief. I can't do that. I'm not going to fault for somebody for pursuing relief. And you break a leg, if you shatter it, if uh, you're a victim of someone like Joey Barton or somebody coming in with a nasty tackle, <laughs> or well, was
0: y- a Joey Barton reference or uh, Nigel though.
1: de Jong? Um...
0: <laughs> didn't I didn't think you were a soccer fan? So yeah, it's a good. I am. That. I am. Yeah. I
1: am. Barton was the first name that came to mind, but then I think about it. De Jong had some horrible. Oh, there's so too. many
0: references for big, uh, big English tackling midfielders. So yeah, you're
1: you're going to need like, you're going to need some painkiller for that leg. Yeah. Yeah. If Paul Scholes um, two
0: foots you, then you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, another,
1: another, uh, you know, an American who dealt with issues with that was uh Stu Holden. He got his knee blown up when he was playing for Bolton on multiple occasions. And it's just mm-hmm. like, he needed painkillers. But the question is, is how long are you going to be on those painkillers and how much and how long? So you have to find some way to address the dysphoria and the pain so that you can get to the leg and actually deal with it. But again, how much and how long are you going to get addicted to it to the point where you just need the next thing? And eventually it's like, well, I need surgery. And what's happening, and You mean see this so often with so many detransitioners and so many stories, they're saying, well, I had the surgeries and it didn't fix what was wrong. It and the drugs, enough. the drugs mm. aren't working anymore. So what's the ultimate numbing tool? And that's suicide ideation. Mm. So let's let's not go the numbing route. Let's go the route of deal with the pain so that you can address the underlying issue. The reason in the main
0: why I dip into this topic and then dip out after a very very short amount of time and then dip back (laughs) in nine months later like a detox is that it's become so toxic and you know when I speak to men and women who have detransitioned like yourself like Sinead like Richie like Limpida like Inyada some of them have gone through this as adults some of them have gone through this as sort of 18 19 year olds and they receive so much abuse but then you also have people on the gender critical side who receive so much abuse you have people on Uh, TRA side who receive so much abuse Mm -hmm. and it just becomes this hierarchy of who receives the most abuse and who can cancel each other so when I see that I just want to tap out because when I see people like yourself and Richie and Sinead who are suffering or who have suffered and especially in Richie and Sinead's case they've gone through huge amounts of pain and and continue to live with the consequences of of transition when I see people giving them so little empathy or on the other side, they love bomb them so hard they turn off from those people as well. It yep. just becomes something so toxic that I just can't abide by.
1: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I feel, I feel the pain there, and that's you know that that's why I've, I've kind of more or less gone silent in recent mm. times, and that's even why I read the, the proverb earlier because I don't know how to respond. I don't, yeah. especially on the whole. I was talking to some, a friend of mine um, recently. She's a little bit older than I am. She grew up and she's half Chechen, half Jewish. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Strong she, mix. Yeah. And she grew up in the Soviet Union. I think it fell apart in her early teens, but she was a card carrying member of the communist party for a long time. This is a woman who has seen hard things, mm. but is also one of the kindest individuals I've ever seen and met. And, and she basically said, you know she asked me this question she said is activism hubris and i'm like wow that's a tough question because i want to say i want to say yes yeah but qualify it i think in some senses kind of being an activist and speaking out and doing things on a really broad scale and a lot of topics i think is because it's saying i think i know what's best and i need to tell other people how to do what's best and as I'm getting older, I'm just, I'm realizing, I, I, I don't know. I don't, mm. I'm realizing just now at 34 years old, I'm starting to learn who I am. I don't even know what's best for me. How can I know what's best for everyone else? I do have some experiences and things that I can share and I have some wisdom, some knowledge and some, you know, just life, again, life experience that I can, I can share with people. But I think that needs to come way more on an individualized level than a broad scale. There is a time and place for broad scale. There is a time and place for getting a message out and all of these things. But if I'm seeing relationships with people on an individual level deteriorate because of what I'm doing on a broad scale, then something's wrong and I mentioned kind of being politically active. I'm not anymore. I've backed off because I didn't like who I was becoming Mm. because the, the incentives for being politically active, and it doesn't matter if you're the right, the left, the center, or way out there off in the distance from the spectrum, which I've kind of view myself, the incentive in the political space in the activism space is to be angry. The angrier you can be, The more hard line you take, the less compassion that you give, the more reward you get politically. And I don't want to do that anymore. So the city of Philadelphia had a trans day of visibility event on March 31st, and they were raising the trans pride flag at the city hall. And I decided to go down there. I was just going to watch. I was just going to watch and listen. It was a painful experience. It was and I could tell it was a painful experience for the people who are participating in it. It was just sad. It was mostly focused on kids and transitioning kids and you could tell these people were in pain. They were experiencing pain and have been through a lot in their lives and they're like, "Well, the right wings coming after us and you know, if you're on the fence, we're going to push you off and like like I don't think this helps. <laughs> I don't think mm-hmm. this kind of language helps. But this woman comes up to me and, and she asks, like, what are they doing? And I said, they're putting the trans pride flag up on the city. It's like, they're doing that? How can they do that? How can that be okay? Because in America, with our, with our constitution and whatnot, it's not supposed to be okay for the city government to put up symbols of ideologies or religion or anything like that. It's not something that most Americans are okay with. The flag comes before all else in America, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 And this woman was very disturbed. And, you know, she was just asking me about it and saying, like, you know, I, I want to think of myself as an ally, I want to support trans people and their rights and equity and all of these things. But this bothers me. And she just starts going into the story about how she was hurt at a young age and had gone through some medical issues. And if she had gone through these things, she had been 20 years younger and had gone through these things today, she would have transitioned. And she's like, I don't know why I can tell you all this. I don't understand. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, well, actually, I'm a detransitioner. I'm sitting here like not really knowing Little did she know. <laughs> yeah, not know. I don't know how to respond to this and all that. And she looked at me and she said, you know what, you've got this, like, you've just got this vibe about you that you, you're struggling with this too, the way I am. And you felt safe to come talk to. And that just struck me. And it's not really anything that I've done myself. It's more so just whether it's my faith or just trying to trying not to run away from my pain allowed me to be a safe space for somebody else who was also in pain how did that make you feel oh it was profound it was just profound it, it was it was heavy because in some sense there's this pride of like okay this is yeah, like pride this versus was,
0: responsibility isn't there yeah yeah yeah. well there's
1: a well i'm talking like pride in a good way of like this was like Wow, I really have come a long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the same time it was this was hell. And in some days, like I'm going through this whole process now of of just growth and learning about myself and periods of intense growth are usually one and the same as periods of intense darkness. Mm-hmm. And so I'm yeah, like, I, this I, feels great. I love that you're saying this, but my life is like a black hole in some place right now. So <laughs> I had a guest
0: on called Deborah Palin. is absolutely one of my favorite people in the world. And she said to me, Fred, the people who have gone through the most trauma in life, have the most growth. And that's always stuck with me.
1: Yeah. I think in some ways it's, it's the people who are willing to address that trauma. Cause you can go through a lot of trauma and just, uh, sort of bounce off of it. I'm reading a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality right now by a guy okay. named Peter. Peter Scazzaro, I think is his name. And he talks about this concept of something called the wall or in ancient terms, the dark night of the soul. You can come like up against trauma or a wall and you can, you can bounce off and you can just become an angry, bitter, mm-hmm. troubled person. Or you can choose to face that pain. You can choose to go through the wall, face it, live it out. Those are the people who grow the people who just hit the wall and keep bouncing off and decide, decide to just dig their heels in are the ones that have a hard time and are generally not pleasant Mm -hmm. to be around. I just came over to that point over the last year or two. Am I going to be a person that keeps bouncing off the wall and keep becoming angry, bitter, generally unenjoyable to other people or am I going to choose to face my pain my suffering and just go through it
0: yeah it's brilliant mate I I talk a lot on this podcast about anti-fragility which is a similar concept yeah I called Nassim Nicholas Tlaib you might you might know the book resilience is when people stay the same after bad things happen to them anti-fragility is when people change for the better when bad things happen to them so yeah I try and be anti-fragile I'm sure you're anti-fragile as well as a tried final to. question. <laughs> yeah, he tried to be, yeah. We're, we're, not, we're not perfect. <laughs> and as a final question, before we move on to our mental health chat, mate, what has this, I don't want to say advocacy journey, but what has this part of your journey taught you about yourself in talking about it, coming back from talking about
1: it and going into this new Zen place? <laughs> oh, I think it's just, um... oh man, that's such a loaded question. I think I... <sighs> I do better. I'm happier. I'm happier when I accept, when I accept confusion in life, when I accept uncertainty, when I accept my own limits, the happiest people that I know in this world are not the most successful. Some of them are successful, but then there's people that I know that you would look at them and think they are poor and miserable and yet they're just, they're just content. They're content to live and be themselves regardless of their circumstances, regardless if they're, if they're certain, uncertain. They have this inner freedom. They have a freedom that, that cannot be taken away no matter how many external freedoms are taken away. Or it's like, if you've ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. Andy Dufresne walks into prison a free man. That's the moral of the story. He walked into prison a free man. And because he was a free man walking into prison, he was able to get himself out. And then the process, set Red free because mm-hmm. Andy was free the entire time. And so I think what I've learned is that's that's what I want. I want to be a free man Regardless of whether I'm happy, sad, confused, certain, I want to be content and free and and, and live that out and hopefully, you know, make a difference in other lives.
0: We've come to our final topic of Conversation Torrent, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about mental health. So firstly,
1: how is your mental health, mate? (laughs) <laughs> it's all over the place. I think uh, if you looked at my life on a day to day basis right now, it's rough. But I say that saying that I'm growing. I, I think part of the reason why it's rough right now is because I'm actually trying to address it. I'm trying to address the pain and the trauma, the frustrations that, it, that actually trigger the depression, and anxiety, rather than just numbing it is like a withdrawal. It's like you take away a drug, you've got to go through that withdrawal process. Mm -hmm. And I've been taking a lot of both literal and metaphorical drugs, you know, whether it be estrogen or something else to address all of these things. And now I'm saying, no, I'm not doing that anymore. So it's a process. (laughs) Okay. I appreciate your
0: honesty, man. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Probably somewhere around 16 or 17. Okay. And was it a eureka moment or a gradual moment?
1: Uh, I think it was just gradual. I think it was watching other family members struggle with mental health Mm -hmm. and realizing that that was having an effect on me.
0: And then if you can remember, can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have looking back? Did it feel like on the one hand, this big moment or big burden or weight even lifted off your shoulders or on the other, something quite easy,
1: insignificant and normal to do? So I don't think I could, I don't think I could point back to the first time because I think it's always, it's ended up always being something that I just don't have a problem speaking about, but I can remember not wanting to speak about it and not having the words to put towards it. I think I mentioned at one point about playing American football growing up and having severe anxiety and I didn't feel that I had the words to talk about it. And so I wouldn't. And so what would happen is I would just like skip practice or, you know, just, just avoid dealing with it rather than talk about it. And eventually that changed. I don't know the point that that changed. It might've changed about the time when I became sort of self-aware and I was just kind of freely talked about it. And that was good. And it's been a good thing since, but there was a change at some point.
0: And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, it could be a sound being in a particular social environment, a sensation, or have you not figured order them out yet?
1: <laughs> I definitely haven't figured them all out yet. But yeah, there there are plenty of things. I, I mean, I I have that perfectionist. You know, I still have that perfectionist trip that I go on, and it's like if I don't feel if I don't feel like I'm performing up to my own standards, then my mental health spirals. There are still things. I mean, like I said, home was an insecure place for me growing up. I struggle feeling secure at home, and that can really trigger some things. So, honestly, like all of COVID and like the work from home laptop era. Oh, God. Ben, uh, that was has bad been.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's still not great. Uh, yeah, like, because yeah, my yeah, company has yeah. actually stayed virtual for the most part. And now I'm finding myself, even though my company has moved us from the city out to the suburbs, I live in the city, so it's difficult to get out to the suburbs. I'm finding myself that I'm saying, okay, I don't want to go out to the suburbs, but if I want to have a positive relationship between work and my mental health, I need to leave the home and I'm finding I have to make the choice to do that. I don't want to use it as an excuse to be mentally suffering or not performing at work. I've got to make a choice. I'm either going to sink or swim. I'm Mm. going to go and get out of the house and be in the office and be around people.
0: And then conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm still, that's kind of the process I'm in right now is figuring out what works. I know for me, as I said in the past, I think I pegged myself kind of incorrectly as an introvert. Mm-hmm. where I, I get energized by being around people talking with people hanging out with people so I have to make decisions like it, it's easy to fall into this like I don't want to go out I don't want to leave the house I don't want to have people see me when I'm in a bad state of mind I mentioned earlier at one point about going to a, to a music festival like yesterday I was feeling terrible I'm like I'm not gonna do this I said you know what no I, i've got I've got I've to go I feel terrible but it was the weather was beautiful it was a just a kind of a tepid day with no no humidity i'm like i'm gonna walk 45 minutes to the next neighborhood over to go to this music festival hang out with people and just be there because that will do better for me than sitting here sulking and and, and And is the best medicine bro yeah it is (laughs) I walked away with more vinyl than, and, and spending more money than I wanted to. So that a <laughs> That's thing. a
0: positive and a negative. <laughs> it's a negative on your bank balance, but yeah, positive yeah. for life. Yeah. <laughs> you've already answered my next question, which is about what is the best book? Because I know it was either it will either be the Bible or be the book uh, book that you've covered already. So my question after that is, if there was a mantra in life that summed
1: up your mental health, what would it be and why? That's a tough one. I I mean I think I I think I gotta go back to that You're not what you do, you're not what other people think of you, you're not what you have. Like you have worth, you have value. Good enough. Don't let perfection be the enemy of good enough. That's beautiful. I love
0: that. And as a final question, mate, it's another broad one, it's not as tough. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about the mental health issues or just their general mental health? If most importantly, they want to do it.
1: I think just doing what we're doing here now is just being an example and just being open about it, talking about it. I think, you know, the best thing to do is, is to model it for other people and consequences be what they are. You know, it's, it's tough being open and being public about personal struggles. A lot of people will say things that aren't, uh, that aren't fun. Um, Mm. but you can, you can, you can choose to engage or not. You know, somebody asked a detransitioner asked you know, how can I be public? And I said, well, I've never had a problem being public. I ran for state representative, my name's out there. People could dox me, people could come and threaten me, but I don't, I don't interact with the people who would do that. I choose, I pick and choose where I interact. I'm open, I'm honest, but I'm also selective. And so if I think if more men would decide to do that, to be open and honest and then just not engage with sort of the bad actors, we could make a, a much better space and see a lot of growth.
0: Tony, this has been one of my favorite ever conversations on the podcast in the two hundred and forty odd I've done. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and putting so much of your time aside to
1: talk to me, mate. Yeah, thank you. It was it was a it was a pleasure. <laughs>
0: Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Torren for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. As always, thank you to all the Venters who tuned into this episode. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash vent UK or you can make one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a VENT t-shirt. Those links on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash VENTHELPUK. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to VENT.